think that is one of our biggest problems with Australian churches. The pastors have all done their time in the institutions, whether it's the seminaries or the coalitions or the church planning networks, and they've come out with all of their rough edges sheared off with the mentality that if you tow the line right, you will get the book deal, you will get the, the conference speaking gig, you will get a seat at the cool table. This is how Matt Chandler did it. This is how Tim Keller did it. This is how the previous generation of pastors did it. Do the same, we'll all be safe. And there's a there's a uprising of younger, uh, more bloodthirsty pastors who are going, I don't need a seat at the cool table, I'll burn the whole house down. Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to The Cauldron Pool Show. We have a little bit of a different episode today, but I'll get into that later. Before uh, we do all those things, I'm going to introduce you to our guest. He is Pastor Tom Ford from Queensland. I'm really excited to have you, so thank you for joining me. No worries. I'm, I'm honoured to be on. I've uh, followed the Cauldron Pool and Cauldron Pool podcast for a bit, and you guys have had some pretty top-tier guests, so I'm, I'm honoured honored to be among mm-hmm. them. Well, it's it's honestly a privilege to have you here. Uh, the last few years in Australia, particularly with churches, has been very challenging, but you have yeah. been one of those consistent voices that has been really helpful for myself personally and my family. Um, so we're grateful to have you here. And with that, I would love it if you could sort of introduce yourself further, a little bit about where you're from, what you do, um, and just sort of a bio for people who might be listening who aren't familiar with your work. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for the for the kind words. I um I'm up here in uh, Logan in Queensland, which is just south of Brisbane, and uh, I'm a I'm the teaching elder pastor at Hope Reformed Baptist Church, uh, and I serve alongside two other guys, Vic and Keith, who are in the ministry, and we're a Reformed Baptist church uh, who who seek to make the church militant and make the church culturally engaging, um, and uh, get good quality, sound, reformed, uh, gospel-heavy teaching out into uh, the world, our country, our community, and definitely into our people. So I I became a pastor here. I was voted in at the end of 2019, and uh, three months later, we had COVID hit. (laughs) So the beginning of ministry was a a wild ride. And, um, And then, you know, then the COVID years, and here we are, um, still going very strong and God's been very gracious to bless us in the ways mm-hmm. that he has, but we have a, um, uh, a church plant down on the Gold Coast here, uh, here just near the border of Queensland, New South Wales. And, um, uh, aside from that, I help out on the executive board of our denomination, which is FECA. And, uh, we're a group of pretty different, th- 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 there's a good spectrum of theological beliefs among those churches, but we're all Protestant, evangelical, complementarian, conservative churches uh, mm-hmm. um, across Australia, and I serve there as as president as well. So, um, yeah, uh, if anybody wants to check either of us out, we're on the internet and on YouTube, so so they can definitely do that. Hmm. What a time to be called into um, eldership and and you know being the, yeah. the leading pastor of a church. Like I feel like that's sort of providence because, you know, you can see the thread of God's wisdom through all that because Mm -hmm. it was a really tough year and so many churches caved and you were one of the ones who didn't. And so I'm grateful that he called you at that particular moment for maybe Mm -hmm. that purpose to begin with, because um, 
we needed more people like you um, at the sort of, you know, in the pulpit at that time. So, wow, mm. what a what a challenging time, but I'm sure it was sanctifying and I'm sure you learned a yeah. lot from the yeah. experience. It, well, the, even before that, God was doing a lot of good preparation work. We act, I actually came into the ministry through quite a fiery ordeal as well when previous, uh, that there was some theological wolf in the pulpit that had tried to take the church away from penal substitution, away from imputation, away from justification by faith alone, uh, away from Calvinism into all sorts of wacky stuff. And so it was actually through that theological battle for the gospel that I was then voted in as pastor alongside uh, uh, another gent. So, um, yeah, that was crazy. Mm. And just as that calmed down and we swung (laughs) into the new year with our new membership, I started a second service. We were ready to get going red hot. Uh, yeah, the, the worst virus, uh, ever seen apparently landed on our, landed on our shores and that virus was called tyranny. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I wasn't sure where that was going then. I was thinking tomato flu, remember they tried that for a little while, but, um, yeah. Yeah, well, I guess that'll sort of lead me into the into a first question I'm going to ask you. And for those who are tuning in as well, we're doing something a little bit different today. So usually I'll have a guest on and um, we'll, you know, either talk about topics that that particular guest is passionate about, or um, I'll read a book or want to talk something specific. But today we decided to sort of change it up and give the questions back to the audience. So for the last couple of weeks, um, I have been putting up posts and asking people to send in questions to ask you specifically, a pastor, a reformed pastor with sound theology and doctrine to answer some of the tough questions that some might not be willing to answer, some don't know how to answer, and some don't know who to ask. And so that's what we're trying to do today. So the questions that we're asking um, have been sent in by our audience, um, by our viewers. So I'm excited because it sort of gives um, them an opportunity to ask and be heard and I'm actually impressed with some of the questions that were asked as well. So um, well, if you're happy to sort of get cracking on this, um, yep, I'll ask you the first one. That's fine. It's it's uh, it's my spiritual gift to not have a filter. So I will allow <laughs> all editing to be done on the post-production and uh, we'll just we'll just fly through whatever these people uh, feel like needs to be asked anonymously. Okay. Well, this one is pretty relevant to what we spoke about, which was sort of the last few years. And I think it came up because of Zoom church um, or Mm. fake church, as I like to call it. But one of the questions the audience asked was, do Christians actually have to physically attend church? Can you just worship at home? Yes, you must gather at church and no, you must. uh, And and yes, you must worship at home. (laughs) It, it's not both and this is where as a reform pastor i come in and go yes you should absolutely turn your home as the puritan said into a little church father is the pastor uh lead the children in worship lead your wife in doctrinal teaching sing together pray together have have worship of jesus in your home and lead your family by on sundays finding a church together at that is absolutely necessary for the christian life it uh of i, I know nobody it's just, I don't know anybody who says that attending church is necessary for salvation. So that's just a big straw man you can knock down. When we say necessary, we don't mean in order to be justified before God. We mean in order to be obedient as those who have been justified and are being sanctified. Yes, physical gathering among a phys- physical people in what will usually be inside a building 
is necessary. Um, uh, a, a lot of the time people will go to places like in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, there I am among you. And they'll go to other places in, in the epistles, which will talk about the, the fellowship together and the encouraging one another and the exhorting one another and say, none of this explicitly commands that we do it in our covenant community called the church. Okay. That that's true. And that's cool. Um, you can fellowship and and should fellowship and must fellowship in the homes and in your cafes and at the bar and at the park and all that stuff. Do that as well. Um, <laughs> the question is not, can we have meaningful fellowship and worship outside of the, the, um, the organized local regular meeting? The question is, does the New Testament assume and speak in such a way that uh, every Christian is joined to a local regular meet or a local body that regularly meets physically? And the answer is yes. Um, so, of course, there's Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25, which says not to neglect the gathering. Um, uh, and we know what gathering he means. He means the regular gathering of God's people in, um, in on Sundays, on what was called the Lord's Day. On the first day of the week, we start seeing in Acts and the epistles as the, as the, as the continual apostolic pattern. They met on Sundays. They worshipped Jesus. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship and to prayers. Um, but even in, by the time you get to like first Corinthians five, Paul is talking about what to do with the guy who's sleeping with his stepmom. And he says that the church ought to put him out from among them. Mm. Now that if there's an out, there has to be some kind of in, if there's a formal way to be out from among you, then there has to be a way to be formally recognized as in. And what does he mean by among you? He can't just mean that. Uh, uh, when you happened to be around each other and different people every time that catches up at the coffee shop or that hang out irregularly throughout the fortnight. He doesn't mean that. He means that there is a, uh, there is a body that can be defined as you. There is an among you, which is within that group. And there is such a possibility as putting somebody outside of among you. That's only possible if there's a defined group of people, which is really where we get church membership from uh, local bodies being able to define themselves. And then, and then even he, he speaks in that same section about the vow, about the importance of or the sanctity of the gathered assembly when he says, um, uh, when you have assembled in the name of the Lord, my spirit is among you and in the power of Jesus, Jesus name or something he says. Um, so he's even saying that when you come together in the name of Jesus, when you assemble, do the church discipline and kick him out. So he's actually already assuming a regular, a, a local body that meets regularly, a, def, a definite body that meets regularly and does church discipline. So all of this stuff is pointing very clearly to the fact that, oh, I'm speaking too heavy. My light did not appreciate that one. It just fell over. Uh, uh, he, he's speaking to the fact that there, uh, that there is a local body that people are, are joined to. And Hebrews 13, 7 and Hebrews 13, 17 um, both speak to the fact that we are to obey and submit to our leaders. Well, the question has to be, who, who are my leaders? Because Bob from the corner calls himself a pastor. Joel down the other corner calls himself an apostle. Do I have to obey them since they are leaders? The answer is no, your leaders, the ones who it says in verse seven, speak to you, the word of God. Um, those are the ones who will give an account over you as a pastor. I don't give an account for every Christian out there. I give an account for those 
who I oversee in the church. So, um, yeah, the question is not, can I obey a lot of the New Testament commands, even if I'm not in a, in a church? The answer is, yeah, yeah, you can. The question becomes, but are there some commands that necessitate a belonging to a local body who meets regularly? And the answer is yes. Get your, uh, No, you cannot obey those if you're not in a church. So get yourself to them. And as far as Zoom church goes, we need to just get rid of the Gnostic idea that physical is irrelevant and spiritual is what matters. As if, um, you know, they say we're not physically together, but we're spiritually together. But that's really dumb. I told pastors all the time, I stopped saying that as dumb. They did online communion. Said, yes. One of First Corinthians 11, some in your church might be dying because you're doing this. Stop it. Yes. You got more risk of dying from abusing the sacraments than you do of COVID. So don't abuse it that way. Um, mm. it, it, I, I use the analogy in one of my sermons. I said, online church is and saying we're spiritually together, not physically together, is like saying, well, I spiritually give my tithes, but I don't physically give my tithes. Mm. Or I, I spiritually am intimate with my wife, but not physically. Or I spiritually eat food, but not physically. I'm like, uh, no, at, in communion with this sacramental reality of the, of the world that God has created, we see that there is spiritual reality infused into physical. You can't do some spiritual things without doing it physically. Um, all of these things are spiritual acts. Um, that are done through the physical mediation. So uh, no, if you're not physically gathering on the Lord's day, you're not spiritually gathering on the Lord's day. That's Mm. just how it is. So assemble, be the ecclesia and Mm. get out of bed. Yeah, it was, it was interesting because, you know, a lot of people argued, um, should we have even done zoom church from the, from Mm. the get go? And I, I sort of have always answered it. Well, maybe there was a purpose for two weeks when we had no clue what was mm. happening. This is, I'm talking back in March, like 2020 days, like yeah. all the way back then when we had all the propaganda hitting our shores, all the videos mm. coming from yeah. China with people foaming the at the mouth. on Google's main page, yeah, just that's fear right. porn. Yeah. yeah, and so it's like you can maybe be a bit gracious to church leaders going, we don't know what we're dealing with, but I think there should have been more spiritual discernment and mm. wisdom in mm. recognising at a certain point when that should have ceased because now yeah. we know what we're dealing with and it yeah. wasn't. And I watched a video, I think it was only yesterday, and I, I cannot remember if it was an Australian pastor or an American one, but it was a pastor who was sort of speaking about what has happened as a result of Zoom church and as a result of online church as opposed to gathering in person. And they said, even though it's opened up again, we're not segregating and, you know, the government said you can have your pulpits back. There's a 60% or higher rate of people not coming to church again. Wow. That's a huge yeah. loss because people are saying, well, why can I? And why that's the pastor's fault. Home? Who mm. told them it's okay to stay at home as long as you got a pretty good excuse? The pastors did. Yeah. It's their fault. Uh, yeah. The, um, yeah, we, I, took, I took about three months. I think uh, we, you know, we, we stopped gathering, I think it was early April, maybe mid-March, whenever it was, when we, when we got told to. Um, and it really took me until um, May, I think it was May, June to start really digging in and, and hearing all these. And, and I started seeing um, mainline pastors go this way and then MacArthur spring off and then Doug Wilson mm. and, and, and Jeff Durbin and a bunch of other guys I respect spring off this way. And I'm like, I'm, uh, 
I lean with these guys. So let me just see what this argument is. But because up until then, sphere sovereignty, you know, it's not it's not one of the big things that you're taught in um, in ministry development and um, what to do in a world pandemic and where the you know the state's power ends. Um, mm. I was pretty pretty green. So yeah, it took 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 us a while, but um, but you know, then then we were then we were straight back into it. But um, mm. uh, yeah, it, it was. I, I hear the worst part of it is when past. I've, I've one of these leadership trainer guys. He was training. He's like, you know what? The post-COVID church is going to look smaller, is going to look less attended but is going to be more powerful, you know, and here's how we can really leverage this to the kingdom of God. I'm like, you're just making excuses. You've got less people in church, you've got less conversions, less baptisms, less churches getting planted, and you're going to pretend it's a win. Like that's, it's mm. so dumb. Uh, just repent, get back to ordinary means of grace and God will bless the church again. Yeah. And there, there were so many questions that were sort of being asked to me during that time, you know, about the sacraments, like you said, there were many churches who were administering it from the basement via Zoom. Um, and, you know, there were all the questions about church discipline, the call to gather. And so, mm. yeah, it was it was an interesting time. And um, I personally believe that the church as a whole, um, most churches probably failed the test. That yeah. That's what I sort of think, which is sad. Um, but Anyway, I'm sure we could talk about all the failures and that, but I will move on to the next question because sure. there are a few here. And no the next worries. one is, it's probably relevant to this as well, actually, because uh, there are probably a lot of people who have experienced a lot of these things going mm. on and don't know who to respect um, or who to sort of submit to in positions of leadership, um, eldership and things. And the question that someone from the audience said is, how do I revere my pastor if I don't agree with his theology on significant issues? Hmm. Um, well, a very important question. Um, I think, I think if let's assume it is actually a significant issue, um, whether or not he agrees with you as to what color uh, the fruit in the Garden of Eden was is not a significant issue. Whether or not, you know, uh, whether he uh, uh, thinks that, um, uh, you know, he disagrees with you about whether the Pope is the Antichrist or not, maybe not going to be a very significant issue. But but let's assume it's a genuinely significant issue. It 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 uh, it affects your lifestyle. It affects. It, it comes through the preaching regularly. It affects um, uh, uh, theology in a, in a broad way. Um, let's assume it's a significant issue. The Hebrews 13, 7 and, uh, you know, 1 Timothy 5 say to give honor, double honor um, and submission towards these people. Um, so the question becomes, is it an issue where you can differ and still give honor to them? So if, if it's an issue like abortion, not only could you probably not give honor to a pastor who's supportive or or on the fence with abortion, you ought not give honor to a man like that because he is not a man. Uh, uh, being soft on something like the murder of babies is something you you ought to not give him honor for. And yes, find a different church. Um, if it's something uh, like like we're talking about convictions around what should have been done in COVID, the COVID time, and mm. to what extent we disagree, to what extent we're free to go along for the sake of living peacefully, um, uh, yeah, can can you still give honor to them? And as Hebrews thirteen says in verse seven, can you look at their lifestyle and still say, I want to be a man like they are a man. I I want my sons to be like them. I want my my daughters to be 
like their wives. Uh, and if not, then again, uh, you're going to find it very hard to obey and submit and follow in their footsteps because they are people you cannot respect. They're people whose image of Christ you do not, um, uh, you do not at all honor. Um, so I'd say if it's a sin for you to submit to things that they're saying, um, like going along with church segregation around vaccinations or whatever, if it's a, it, or they're saying we won't do communion um, because it's bad for sanitary stuff during this next wave of, of Omicron or whatever. Um, therefore they're, they're calling you to sin by neglecting the Lord's table. Um, if it's a sin for you to submit, uh, then now it's very significant and the way and that doesn't mean you you dishonor and you don't submit to them. It means you honor them and submit to their office by leaving. Mm. So, so one of the ways you can be very honoring and very submissive to them is say, obviously, this is a church that you've been uh, charged over. I don't think you're doing a good job. To stay would be to be grinding your gears. Um, you're going to give an account to Jesus, not ultimately to me. I'm going to honor you and submit to you by not starting a revolt or an uprising, but politely leaving. This is one thing that a lot of Christians don't realize and a lot of pastors don't realize is no Christian owes any pastor their allegiance um, until they can see that they are a, um, a, a, a biblical, respectful, uh, faithful shepherd and um, that is, that is pouring their life out for them. If they don't see that, you don't, you don't, you, you don't owe owe it to them to make sure that they're your pastor. You can move anywhere else that you think your soul will be better shepherded. You don't owe any church your attendance. Of course, membership means something. And when you're committed somewhere, you should you should not just up and leave every, you know, every six months for the sake of doing new stuff. But what we're talking about is, yeah, if there's issues there and you can't respect it, you can't honor them, and you then you submit by leaving and not causing a big issue. Hmm. Um, uh, otherwise, you just have to stay quiet about it. Um, sit down with him, talk, talk with him about it. But if he's not budging and you don't want to leave, then you need to honor and submit them by not starting an uprising in the church and not trying to get everybody on your side. That's not submissive at all. You leave or you find a way to join his mission and his vision. Yeah, definitely. I think if, I think sort of, you know, like you mentioned, if it is a genuine, serious theological thing and you can't see eye to eye, yeah, definitely. But like you said, there's probably other issues that could hopefully be dealt with in a matter internally with healing and reconciliation, maybe repentance um, yeah. and, you know, things like that. I guess through that process, you would learn to revere your pastor. But mm. another question that was sent in, uh, which... Um, is a question that I have personally been asked a lot. And I asked um, Doug Wilson when I had him on what his thoughts were, were on it as well. So I'm going to judge your response based on what he answered me as well. Um, okay. okay. Well, I'll on. score you. Um, but so you're asking me to be more extreme than Doug Wilson. That's, a, that, that's what I heard. And I'll Challenge, be, I would love to. Uh, is is forthwith. So let's, okay. let's see how you fare. But somebody said, uh, my church doesn't think it did anything wrong by banning the unvaccinated people for a few weeks. And this mm. question specifically says it was only for a few weeks. Um, is that grounds for leaving that church? Mm. Uh, what would Doug do? <laughs> uh, I think um, it, it can be. It can be, absolutely. Um, so it depends. You I think you have two issue, two options at the moment. Even if it was only for a few weeks, 
let's just be honest and say, but if it was for a few months, they would have done it for a few months as well. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, there's no such thing as thinking they did nothing wrong and still did it for a few weeks if the government said to do it longer. You, you bet. They only did it for a few weeks because that's all that Dom Perrottet or all that Anastasia Palachuk asked for, for them to do. You can be sure if they asked for a year or they asked for six months, like their pattern showed, they would have towed the line and chosen the path of least resistance. It's just convenient and fortuitous for them that they can say it was only for three Sundays. And then on Reformation Sunday, we opened right back up. It was Freedom Day and everybody everybody sat very obediently during our our um, Reformation celebration yeah. of the martyrs. Um, uh, so let's just, I don't really think it's relevant anymore that it's just a few weeks. It would have been longer if they were required to. Um, and you've got two options. Either they they don't think they did anything wrong out of unrepentance. They're just saying, look, I wouldn't do it the same again and whatever, but, but no one's owed my apology. We did the right thing. We couldn't have known. You know, it's not like anybody wrote a big declaration about how, how problematic this was. Or, you know, uh, if they're just being unrepentant, that's an issue. If they genuinely don't think they did anything wrong, they're like, I, look, the Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. People were dying, you know, the vaccination was going to save everyone. Now you've just got child level ignorance on your hands. So the question becomes, if it's one of those two options, if your pastor has not come out in open repentance and, uh, and asking for forgiveness and they, for their um, exclusion of unvaccinated people, uh, even if they had another unvaccinated service, it was segregation forced by government that they willingly went along with then you've either got somebody who is so as ignorant as a child and he's leading your church. Mm. What's he going to do at the next big challenge? Um, what's he going to do when it's, when it's your marital issues? Is he going to have any discernment to be able to push through that? Um, uh, or you've got somebody who is blatantly unrepentant and doesn't care about uh, uh, the fact that he's serving Christ's church and he was segregating Christ's bride. And in another st- the, the, the question has to be asked again, do you want that guy leading, you know, f- formulate, uh, uh, forming the renewal of your mind through his handling of the scriptures? And the answer is in both cases, no. So it is grounds for leaving. As soon as, if anybody, I want to I sort of help somebody's conscience out there. If they're like, ah, I want to leave, but is that even allowable? Like, yes, absolutely. He failed. He had two years to formulate an opinion about this whole thing. It wasn't like a two-week two rushed yeah. question. Two years there was plenty of people telling him the opposite to what he thought. He did, they, he and the elders did not do the right thing, and now they don't care. He's either very foolish or uh, or unrepentant. You're absolutely absolutely allowed to find proper shepherds. Um, but the, I'm not going to bind someone's conscience and say you must leave because maybe you're willing to to work together with these people and you see hope on the horizon and you think you think love can cover a multitude of sins, but you can help work together for a better church all power to you that, you know, praise God. Um, but yes, it is grounds for leaving. Hmm. Yeah. I think, um, Joel Webin, when I, um, did a, in, a podcast with him, he sort of said the same thing. Um, if a pastor is truly repentant, um, and has acknowledged that they have made a mistake, um, and they shouldn't have done it. He said part of their, um, repentance and part of their regeneration should be them stepping down for a moment from the pulpit and from that position of leadership because they were supposed to be the people who had the most spiritual awareness and lacked all discernment in that matter and as a leader of a church 
they're qualities that you must have. Um, and so that was interesting um, that he sort of raised that. But, yeah, um, I, I will say you probably scored uh, a pretty high up there uh, with your response with uh, oh, Doug's. Yeah. So um, I'm pleased with that. Um, Five out of ten I- on the Doug Wilson scale is a, <laughs> is a big win. But I, I think it was clear what you said. I think that's what people want to hear. You know, people's conscience, like that's it's a sin if you go against your conscience. That That's mm. what people don't understand as well. So if someone's conscience is saying they want to work with a church and in a sanctifying process, try and help lift, you know, the wool off people's eyes and minister's eyes so they can see, then, yeah, as you said, like hats off, good for you. But I also believe if there is no repentance, um, that it's probably not a safe place for your yeah. eternal soul to be yeah. get, receiving uh, yeah. instruction and discipline and teaching from. So Yeah, definitely not long-term. The other question would be, is there somewhere better to go? Like it might be a reformed church that preaches the gospel, but you know what? They were, they were pretty weak during COVID years. Or yeah. an apostolic church that stood firm, but tries to cast a demon out of my wife every week because she has the sniffles. <laughs> I go, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, you know, it's not going to be as black and white for everybody, but for the majority of people, especially people in cities, you'll be able to find somewhere a bit more faithful. Yeah. Well, that was another question someone sent in, which is what do I do if I can't find a good church? What, what should somebody, a Christian do if there's no good church in their area? Um, try harder to find one. That's always my first answer. Um, try even harder, keep on looking, visit you know maybe they've got a, a dodgy website but at least visit check them out um because the option like we said first question the option is never to not go to a church that is that is the sin so um if not that then drive a long distance like maybe maybe they're saying in my area would be their 20 minute drive i'd hope we've got people who drive sometimes over an hour and a half just to come on sundays um and they'll go home after the evening service in in the you know in the, in the night time um that that is and that's pretty low level like i know guys in um uh in mexico who start driving saturday morning spend 12 hours driving uh sleep the night and drive another three hours in the morning to get to a church and then drive 18 hours home to be able to work again on monday um Mm. drive the distance you know maybe it's two hours that's nothing that's fine put up with it get your family to a good church and then of course the third option would be move and find one so um you know lots of people especially covid years Lots of people have been willing to relocate um, for lifestyle. You know, they want freedom. They want a bit more uh, land. They want some more self-sustainability. None of those are bad things. They're cool. They're God's blessings. That's fine to pursue them. Um, but I would say there are there are there are fewer people who are willing to move suburb, move maybe even move mm. more urban than they are now. And that that's a killer for a lot of people. They love the sticks or or whatever, and they just got to move closer into the city to be able. And maybe it's even more expensive. And that's not an option for everybody, but, you know, do what you can. Maybe you need to move to a new area. Um, and there are good churches in rural areas if you can't afford city. But, um, yeah, you, that, that's it. you got, you got to find one. you got to drive to one or you got to move to go to one because that's the stream of God's blessings for the Christian is mm-hmm. through the ordinary means of grace by the word of God, which occurs in the local church. I'll add another option there. I'm going to add my two okay. cents here. Or, or plant a church, yeah. Yeah. create one. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I know um, somebody um, who was kicked out of his own church, his own pulpit, his oh, yeah. wife and his children weren't allowed to go preach and minister there in his own yeah. pulpit because oh. of the vaccination segregation. Um, oh, wow. And so he just sort of said, oh, well, 
I'm going to create my own church. And yeah. the first week that he started a church, there were over 35 people sitting on those chairs. Yeah. That's so awesome. like, praise God. And so that's also yeah. something else. Uh, not everybody can, can obviously yeah. do that. that, that that's but, why I didn't say that one, but yeah, it's an option. Can, it's an option. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, at the, I'm sort of in a position now where, um, I'm in rural Australia yeah. out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and there aren't many options. And the only yeah. church that didn't segregate or, you know, when I sort of messaged and said, Oh, what's your stance on this? Like, are we going to have Vax passports to come in, et cetera? They said, Nope, come along. So they were the only church who did that. So I went along, yeah. but theologically speaking, I was going to say <laughs> I, very I bet, different. Yeah. Um, very Arminian. Um, yeah, but right. to be fair, they don't know what they are. That's the thing. They're an independent okay. church. They don't know if they're Arminian or Calvinist, but when they were asking me questions and I sort of said that, um, I was, you know, a, a Calvinist, they were like, what's that? And oh, no that's way. coming from know. that. Yeah. And so it was, it's, it's a really, I've actually that's, found that's, it to be a be real refreshing. blessing to be yeah. honest, because, um, I obviously don't, want to teach or be a woman who teaches but there has been great opportunity for me to form friendships with some of the other women there and i sort of i've been, I've been thinking i'm not sure if this is wise maybe this is a question i'll ask you i'm like i should have like a, a women a woman's night like a movie night and i might play even exile from <laughs> and and i'm like yeah. instead of it being a soft approach it's like a carotid slap to the to, you know yeah. like, maybe that's not the right way but it's been a real blessing and it's been a blessing for my own um you know theological development because i'm having to really rely on reading and family ministry at home and all of those sorts of things to mm. Be sure of things. So, you know, even if it's not theologically a hundred percent where you stand, um, there is still blessing that comes from yeah. the discipline, the self-discipline and the perseverance and the obedience in attending church every yeah, Sunday. Exactly so right. it's been a blessing to me, even though it's not my perfect church. And mm. even though it's not what I would like to listen to coming from the pulpit, there have been many good fruits to be, yeah. you know, come from. And, yeah. And, and that, and that is part of the sanctifying experience is, is if you always go to church when it's only ever easy and the ideal church, um, it's good. It doesn't say a lot. Uh, when you are making an effort to go to church, when you're wriggling in your seat during the teaching or you disagree with certain parts of it, but it is still a true church that does preach the word. They're right on the gospel yeah. and they, they, they administer the sacraments and don't put people under church discipline for not having a medical exemption. Yeah. Uh, sorry, for not having it, not, not having the medical uh, procedure. Um, then, then that's gold. Uh, mm. And it'll be, a, it'll be a sanctifying experience of having to sub And that's where submission really comes in. You're submitting to those leaders probably harder than you ever have before. Not because you have to agree with them, but yeah. In your disagreement, you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm gathering here, I'm worshiping here, I'm giving here, I'm praying for these people, and uh, Jesus yeah. is good. Yeah, and if it ever comes to a point where I'm the cause of division with theological things, that's when, like you mentioned, I would submit and leave yeah. because that would be divisive for the church and the body of, yeah. of Christ in that context. So yeah. we've got we've got a bunch of people who came to hope who who are not Reformed Baptists. They're either not Reformed, not Baptist, or they're super different, but they come and they go. I like what you're doing. I like what you're preaching. Uh, I like your stance on stuff. 
I'll get over the rest. And I've converted most of them into reformers. I was going to say, it's like a challenge. I'm like, I'm going to convert <laughs> yeah. one soul at a time for reform theology, <laughs> bit by bit if I have yeah. to. Yeah, um, and as a pastor, I have all the freedom to. Like, they're at my church. So I'm yeah. I'm going to teach them exactly what I, what I wonder. Uh, but, um, yeah, you know, people mm-hmm. do that because they know the, the, the necessity of meeting and the hardship of, of meeting yeah. with the under pastors you can't respect. Yeah. Okay, so I'll move on to... Um, Another question. I'm going to sort of morph two questions together because I kind of think they sort of um, do it. So one of the questions is, do you think your church will continue to grow in the midst of a woke generation who disagree with you? And the next question is, we're seeing the Australian church being led and represented this is a long question. I'm going to read okay. out by limp-wristed, progressive, postmodern churches and pastors. Do you believe this is a threat to Christianity in Australia? And I thought that's interesting because they kind of they're the opposite questions, but they're probably you can probably answer it in one. The first question being, mm. how does a proper and theologically uh, sound church grow in a country that kind of disagree culturally? And second, um, we're seeing the Australian church obviously um, fall to that mm. cultural pressures and stuff. And um, do you think that it's an urgent threat for Christianity in Australia and how mm. do we kind of call the church to account? Yeah. Um, yes, the church will grow um, in this uh, adulterous generation. Yes, it is. I mean, they, they said your church. I'm going to take it personally. Yes, my church is growing um, uh, by scores and the, the a lot of young people, a lot of post-woke people, a lot of post, post-modern post people, a lot of ex, um, ex-feminists and stuff. Uh, it, not just may it, may it grow, it is growing. And, um, uh, and then is it a risk to the church on the whole that there is limp-wristed and progressive and whatnot else? Um, pastors and churches out there yes it is a severe and genuine risk um we could lean too heavy on the sovereignty of god and say the means don't matter uh jesus will build his church um but the israelites couldn't say you know the the prophet isaiah couldn't say that in his adulterous generation and go ah god's given promises to israel she will uh always be the apple of his eye the health of the spiritual nation doesn't matter you go no he preached because it did matter um, God's God's ends, the, the the saving of all of his people and the glorification of Jesus Christ through them is God's end goal. It and that will only be be accomplished through the means of individuals becoming Christian. And Paul says in Romans 10 that individuals become Christian through hearing the gospel that is preached by people. Mm-hmm. So if we are not a church that is preaching the gospel evangelistically um, and engagingly. Um, and if we don't have churches, biblical churches, where those people can gather and be sanctified, yeah, the church will crumble, will come into God's judgment and will um, uh, not, not in a final sense, but in a, in a temporal sense. You know, we see this in Revelation 2 through 3, when Jesus says to his churches, uh, to those seven churches, to the church who conquers, I will give. To the church who conquers, I will bless, I will empower, I will all these things. And, and he says to churches that are tolerating female preachers, tolerating false teaching, tolerating sexual immorality, tolerating cowardice and lethargy and laziness. And uh, like a lot of our Australian churches say dumb stuff like, you know, a cowardly excuse. We are um, we're faithful, but fruitful. 
Like we're being as faithful as we can, but you know, that doesn't mean we're going to grow. Well, that's, that's not the test. We're in the age of renewal. We're in the age where the gospel breaks forth and Jesus is the glorious Revelation 19 horse riding through the world, gleaning a victory for himself. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The word goes out and it is never fruitless. Um, and uh, um, so, uh, yeah, churches like that who will not conquer the way that Jesus tells us to conquer in Revelation 2 through 3, he says, I'm going to stomp you out. I'm going to put out your light. I'm going to put you away. I'm going to close your doors. I'm going to, I'm going to throw you away. Um, uh, he will never do that to his entire church. He will build his church and it will never be um, uh, totally destroyed. But that does not mean that he will not wipe out um, certain churches uh that are that are faithless he will do that mm. he does do that and he has done that um mm. so yes it's a risk however we can also re rest and trust on those sovereign promises of of the lord jesus who is risen that says because um uh you know i i i, I used this analogy when i was preaching through revelation too i said um uh, jesus was dead and he came back to life some churches are dead. He can bring them back to life. He's the king that holds the seven spirits in his hands. Like uh, he's able to do that. But um, that can only happen through, like I said before, the ordinary means of grace. The word needs to be preached and preached properly. The sacraments need to be done because they are the ordinances of Christ's church and church discipline needs to be done properly, which means that only the right people come into formal membership and the wrong people are kicked out of church membership so that we have a pure church where those things are being done. And when I say preaching the word, it's not enough to be theologically accurate. I think most of the guys I was having fights with online and uh, in person over the last couple of years were reformed bros, guys who agreed with me, probably 95% of theology. Um, the issue, the issue is not whether their doctrine was right. The issue is more whether or not they would speak, how they would present those true doctrines in our culture. Mm. Even some of them, like we would agree on sexual ethics, but they would present it in a much more palatable winsome tone friendly effeminate way whereas i would say the thing that the culture needs to hear okay so the question is not are you saying something true the question is are you saying the true thing in the way that the culture needs to hear it okay that's that's the that's the that's the big question and you even see in the new testament that the, the apostles um even jesus would say things in a in a way that was intentionally subversive intentionally con uh um conflicting intentionally uh inflammatory um uh, the things they call Jesus, the uh, uh, the way they they made a statement out of Christ as Lord. It, they were taking political statements about the Caesars and turning them into a Christ exalting statement. Mm. Um, yeah, so I I think the church needs to get its spine back. Needs mm. men who are. I think this will largely happen in the younger generation. I'm thinking like 35 and younger, um, who have not been largely institutionalized. I think that is one of our biggest problems with Australian churches. The pastors have all done their time in the institutions, whether it's the seminaries or the coalitions or the church planning networks, and they've come out with all of their rough edges sheared off with the mentality that if you tow the line right, you will get the book deal, you will get the, the conference speaking gig, you will get a seat at the cool table. This is how Matt Chandler did it. This is how Tim Keller did it. This is how the previous generation of pastors did it. Do the same, we'll all be safe. 
and mm. there's a there's a uprising of younger uh more bloodthirsty pastors who are going i don't need a seat at the cool table i'll burn the whole house down i don't need to be trained how to be institutional friendly that's not how you build a church in chaos mm. uh we we gotta we gotta get get um get bull dogmatic at the moment and start saying it in ways that the culture hears us because being winsome won't work well, I'm glad you answered that. Another part of the question was, how does the church regain relevance in our culture? And I love what you said, you know, our culture is chaos. I don't think we should be gaining relevance in chaos. If we're gaining uh, relevance in chaos, we're obviously not doing something right because we should yeah. have nothing in common or want to have anything in common with mm. the culture. So I like that you said that the culture actually needs the message delivered a certain mm. way. So I feel like you kind of yeah. answered that question unintentionally without the church doesn't gain culture uh, sorry doesn't gain relevance the church is the most relevant in relevant institution at any point in time that the church needs to realize um she is infinitely relevant because only she carries the words of truth and without mm. her the world will perish and decay and hell will swallow up the billions every day you don't need to try and get, you don't need to sit down with, with, with cool, uh, you know, uh, urban pastors and, and do a head brainstorming to how do we, you know, help our, our, our church uh, meet the needs of our pe of, of the people in the city and help them rediscover the truth, beauty and relevance of Jesus. He's relevant. He's infinitely relevant. He is the only thing that matters. He is the center of all reality and all truth. Just preach it like you believe that. Just get John the Baptist spirit, stand up, yell the things that are true and watch them either writhe in their disagreement and hatred of his rule or come as Psalm 110 says, come willingly in the beauty of holiness to his throne. That, that's, that's my ministry. That's my ministry paradigm is Psalm 110. Jesus is raised. It's like trying to, trying to ask people, how do you make the, 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 the rule of you know, an omnipotent sovereign relevant to people like what do you mean how do you become relevant it is relevant it's the most relevant thing ever just just declare his rule declare that he is lord declare that he's ruling the nations and judging the nations and judging individuals tell them to come and take refuge in him because his wrath is is uh quickly kindled uh get to him uh take refuge or, or perish you don't need to make that relevant you just need to preach it without cowardice hmm. amen um now i'm going to move on from COVID. And the Australian churches for for a bit. I feel like we've we've dedicated a bit of time, which I think is fair because I think a lot of people want answers to these things because they're hurting. Like we all feel like refugees in our own churches and our own country. So it is challenging. So I'm glad we could address that. But there are a few other topics that I thought might need a bit of time, um, and I'm aware sure. of the time. So I'm going to move on to another question that a viewer um, sent in, which is completely off topic to everything. So. Okay. Does being a same-sex attracted Christian who is celibate disqualify you from ministry? I'm going to remind you that editing is your job. And I'm going to say, <laughs> absolutely. A man cannot be the same-sex attracted Christian and lead the people of God in any way, shape, or form. Um First of all, is it appropriate to use the language of same-sex attracted Christian? And the answer is no. It is a confusion in terms and it is, it is uh, extremely unhelpful. 
It is only as helpful. And if people want to use same-sex attracted Christian, I say this all the time. Other people say this all the time. Fine, as long as you're willing to speak about um, child-attracted Christians and murder-attracted Christians and uh, things of that nature, at which point they'll jump up and go, no, that's totally different, but it's not. It is, it is a blasphemy to the name of Christ to hyphenate his name with a sin. Um, you can't be a homosexual Christian, even if you're celibate. You should not call yourself a same-sex attracted Christian, even if you're celibate. And the reason is because I'm not denying that converted, truly regenerate Christians still struggle with their former lusts. And, um, and for some people, that will include uh, homosexual desires. The issue is that anybody who uses that language, even past, and I'm thinking especially of the pastors who use this language, I'm thinking of even the British Gospel Coalition guy, Sam Albury, who came to um, Australia not long ago and spoke in Reformed churches on Sundays. Um, they, use, they, they will say that the same-sex attracted is, is, is brokenness but not sin unless it's acted upon in either lustful thoughts or practice. And I'm going to go back one further and say, it's not just um, acted upon thoughts in lust. It's not just the bodily acts of homosexuality. Even the desire itself is disordered desire. And uh, uh, I don't like using just the language of brokenness, just as we're all a little bit incomplete. Not all of us are, are, um, are as sanctified as we ought to be, but it's not an active sin. And I think that the way that, uh, um, you know, just like men might still lust after other women, though they're married and though they're Christian, but that's not a helpful analogy because it's not a parallel. Um, Paul says in Romans one, I think I'm about verse 26 through 30. Um, he starts talking about, you know, there's all sorts of passions that we go along with, but in, in those sections, he talks about the disordered, unnatural desire so a man lusting after a woman that's not his wife <coughs> is like a man going too fast on the highway he's breaking the law he's going beyond what he ought to do but he's at least in line with his nature the way god designed him homosexual desires are driving across the highway or worse yet in the opposite direction on the highway it doesn't matter what speed you're going. It doesn't matter if you give in to those lusts. It, the very fact that that direction is there is something unnatural and twisted. And because I love the gospel of grace, it's I love to be able to say, and the good news of that is that sanctification will deal with that. You should expect, and this is what a lot of, a lot of pastors don't want to say, sanctification for somebody who is formerly homosexual will, will, result in the death of same-sex attraction it just has to uh, uh proper sanctification if, if they're given over to the proper renewing of their mind and and it's because it's more than just a question of who you desire the question is why do they desire that why do they not think of bedding another man and just inwardly re, you know get get repulsed by that uh, and the question is because they don't have a very renewed mind around gender gender roles, masculinity, um, the purpose of masculinity, the purpose of taking a wife, the, the beauty of the complementarity, um, God's design in patriarchal uh, 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 goodness, 
all those, if you give a guy, and this is what I've found to be the most effective. If I give a guy the real, true, full-blooded, red-hot picture that, ma- that the Bible gives of masculinity with all of its warts and all of its difficulties, the desire for other men starts waning because that they realize how they re- that ignorance is pushed away and uh and and truth starts starts lighting up and that they it ultimately they can't help but start wanting to do what men were supposed to do and that never includes taking another dude um so the question becomes should a can you be a christian and even a church member who still struggles with those old desires yes in my church, I would not make you a member if you still wanted to use the language same-sex Christian because you're misrepresenting Christ. But um, uh, but if you're still struggling with those desires, yeah. Can they be a pastor? And the answer is no. No, that you've got a man who's supposed to be leading the, the people of God theologically and in holiness who, who, who says that it's beyond his ability to look at a man and not feel sexual attraction. I, I wouldn't even trust him to serve in in children's ministry. I, I definitely wouldn't wouldn't put him as a as a pastor. That's me. That's uh, 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 I'm praying becomes the majority. I know is the minority position at the moment, but but no, same sex attraction guys, even if they're celibate, are not qualified to be in ministry. I saw an interesting video um, a couple of weeks ago with a priest. I think over in maybe the UK, um, and he identified as a gay priest he actually used Mm. the word and there was a video of him out the front of some kind of medical institution with um what would have been seen as holy oil or water but he mixed it with glitter to throw at this particular place to represent the gay christians and things and that to me at the time just screamed mockery um Mm. and blasphemy in the image of christ and there are certainly um extremes um you know you know such as that but i'm glad that you sort of addressed the lesser of the extreme maybe a a newly uh you know, a new mm. Christian who's come to the faith, who is still going through the regeneration yep. and the sanctification and that you still can struggle with those particular yeah. sins, because that is a question people say, um, is it an immediate, like you become a Christian and boom, it's done. Mm. Um, but I, I, I do like the analogies. And I think that people who are listening into the podcast will appreciate that and understand that a little bit better. So um mm. That was great. But I'll move on to the next question, um, which is interesting. I feel like I have a lot to say about this, but I'm going to let you say stuff about this and then maybe I'll say something at the end. Um, Why should I look to the Bible when women are always portrayed as inferior, uh, weaker and of lesser value when I can turn to feminism instead, which empowers me? Mm. You've swallowed that lie, hook, line, and sinker who are asked this question. Um, feminism does not empower you, uh, and the proof is in the pudding. You can look around in the world and you can try and find one thing that women are thriving in now that they were they were not thriving in uh, or that they were uh, horribly oppressed in in years gone by, uh, and you will search in vain. Um, you should look to the Bible, firstly, because it is the word of the God who created us, and therefore... Whether or not you understand the beauty of its implications, you are still bound to submit to what is ultimately true. And outside of the word of God, there is no ultimate truth. 
um, revealed to us. So there's that. Um, but you can, when you look to the Bible and you see the way that women are portrayed, uh, you are misinformed if you think that they are inferior, weak, less status, something like that. I think you said, was it less value? Yeah. Um, those things are, um, they're either not the case or they're not the problem you think they are. Uh, does the Bible say that women are weaker? Uh, yeah. Are women weaker? Yeah. Uh, in what area is the next question? Well, in the area of, of, uh, um, of, uh, of, of patience and interpersonal, uh, disputes. <laughs> no, I think women can be, uh, just as, or especially in the area, you know, the, 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 the need of a mother in rearing children. Um, I don't know any guy who is more patient with young children than his wife. I'll just say that. Uh, I think that, you know, that there's, there's a strength there. Um, so, so weaker in what sense? Physical weakness? Yes, they are weaker. Is that a problem? Only if you're a chick who wants to be a dude. <laughs> if you're a chick who's fine with being a being physically weaker than a husband or men in general, then welcome to reality. That's fine. Like, what, what's the problem? That's only a problem because you've been told that's a problem. Um, uh, inferior? Well, in what sense? Inferior in value? No, not at all. Made both in the image of God. Inferior in beauty? No. Woman is explicitly created and called beautiful as the as the shining emblem of God's uh, creative beauty. Is she inferior in glory? No. She, yes, man is the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 11, 3. But woman is the glory of man. She's the glory of the glory. Uh, um, so no, not inferior in glory. Is she inferior in status? Well, depends what you mean by that. Often, yes. Often inferior will, uh, in status will mean... Now, we're just in the critical age, so, you know, of critical theory. So you hear inferior, it means oppressed and bullied. But really, inferior just means uh, with less authority and uh, lower down in the hierarchy. And yes, that is the case. So a woman to her husband is inferior in terms of authority and leadership. Uh, is she... Uh, in uh, women inferior... Um, to men in intelligence, no. Inferior in um, value, no. In gifting, no, but different. So part of the things that you're saying, like, yeah, some of that's true about the Bible. The question is, who are you going to believe? Frustrated feminists who hate their body, hate their self, hate their world and and uh, look the way they do. Or the Bible, who which is the source of truth and real, and it's the norm that you need to conform yourself to. Um, but what feminism has taught, and this has been a real big angle of my preaching because um, on most, I would say every Christian gal is influenced by feminism more than she realizes. Um, so feminism will tell ladies that marriage is a prison. Uh, uh, marriage is slavery. Motherhood is a prison. The home is, is a jail cell. And if you could just get out of there and do what men do, you would be happy and free and liberated and you'd be able and so uh, now when when you go back to the bible you see that marriage is god's way of blessing both man and woman and protecting the woman and providing for the woman and gives the woman she's not just this passive trophy that sits at home and looks pretty in vacuums she is a household manager she is uh, as you look through the bible there is um uh, I did a talk on this at our most recent Stand Firm conference. I'll recap the whole thing. But but basically, women are called in the Bible to be wives, homemakers, and mothers, and men are called to be 
husbands, workers, and leaders. Um, and that's just how it works. We're, we're created differently. That's where that language of complementarity comes in. Yes, male rule is God's ordinary uh, design for families, churches, and society. Um, but, you know, it's like Peter's, Peter's question to Jesus. Where else am I going to go? No one else has the words of eternal life. It's only the word. And are you offended by the Bible? Good. Everybody should be offended by the Bible when you come to it. If you're not, you're not reading it right. And I believe in equality. I try and offend men as much as I offend women and women as much as I offend men. But the but the Bible will confront and push against our natural desires, no matter what gender you're coming at it with. Um, so, and uh, only the Christian worldview gives rise to the kind of values and qualities that the feminist thinks she wants. Mm. Equality, value, love, um, all that stuff. That, that only makes sense in the Christian worldview. And the Christian worldview is based on the Bible, which says that men and women are very different and feminists need to stop existing. <laughs> it's, it's funny. Um, I actually think that feminism hates women by it its does. very core um, foundations. Like it literally hates women and it has sold lies to women over a time, um, which has caused women to believe these lies. And you look at uh, women today, they have more rights and more freedoms. I would say that they have, culturally speaking, in some areas, more rights than even men in terms yep. of family court matters, domestic yep. violence matters, all of these things. They have more rights, more freedoms than ever before, freedom to do what they like, yet we have the least happy women in all of history. Mm -hmm. Why? And you've got to ask yourself the question why yeah. is because we are literally going against our created purposes yeah. and our inherited natures. And, uh, you know, you only have to actually read the Bible to see how valued women actually are. Mm. Um, mm. And it's, it's one of the lies is that the Bible hates women because it uses language like weaker vessel and, you know, meekness and submission. And mm. it's the misinterpretation of this language and not reading it contextually with this with this the scriptures where all of these you know they take advantage of vulnerable women who have voids and who are seeking things out the bible is not a is, is not a woman's enemy the bible mm. is a woman's friend and the bible um gives women protection and freedom because it not only restrains evil it restrains evil in the hearts of men which in turn mm. protects women um yeah. and so you know i think one of the biggest lies that feminism has sold is that women can have the best of both worlds like you mentioned like mm. what a burden to put on any woman's shoulders that they can have yeah. the best of of both of these worlds um you know another lie that men and women are the same mm. um that another lie that men want women who they have to compete against that's yeah. another great lie another that's lie right. is that women can wait forever and doesn't matter about when you have kids like that's yep. one of the biggest most tragic lies out of all of it mm. um and the list goes on. I could go on, but okay. you know, it's just lie upon lie. So for yeah. and whoever asked that question, I just want to encourage you to mm. actually read the Bible with an open heart, with a gentle heart, and with um, you know, eyes that are willing to actually see. Mm. Um, because the Bible is our friend, not our enemy. So I'll just, that, I could say more, but I'm going to, this is about you today, uh, Tom. So we're going to, I'm going to ask you the next question. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this one um, is interesting. Um, before we started press record, you know, we sort of spoke about this and this to me seemed like something 
that wouldn't be a big thing. Like I, I was surprised, but you sort of said it's actually a bigger thing than I realized. So mm. um, the question is, is it wrong for married Christian couples to watch pornography together? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think most people would hear this and go, no Christians asking that question. Sure. Pro- probably happily married gals who are married young to a good husband uh maybe older generation christians even uh might hear this and go what what is this this is an atheist's question um what blood drinking pagan would would do that but it's not it's a millennial question um and it as a pastor it come it comes up here and there um you know 90 90% or something of of men are addicted like regularly using pornography by the time they're married well it's like by by 18 and most and the average age of marriage in Australia, and it's not that different in or out of the church, is about 30. So you've got 12 years of pornographic addiction, mm. which only gets worse because that's how sin works. Passion, uh, passions increase as they're fed. And the higher the the higher passions run, the more obscene things they need to invent in order to consume. So that's why you get um, barely legal pornography um, and uh, all sorts of strange streams of pornography is because guys just need the next hardest hidden thing to, um, to uh, enjoy themselves. So now sometimes you get guys who are converted or sometimes you just got Christian kids who, you know, the, let's be honest, the previous generation of Christians did not, know what they were getting into when smartphones and laptops came into the home. So um, there's a lot of Christians out there who were introduced to it young. Uh, So you get these young guys who are addicted to stuff and then they uh, get married and lo and behold, they find they can't be attracted to their wife very much. They wish they could. She's nice. She's pretty. They love her. But uh, especially, you know, kids come around and life gets busy and, and her body changes and, uh, and you know what, uh, nothing works anymore. And so a lot of guys, a lot of men have secret pornographic addictions and a lot of men try and work that into the marriage in a sanctified, falsely sanctified way by making it heterosexual, normative, married, you know, we're both Christians. No one else is involved here. It's just us. We use it in order to keep our sex life uh, going and um yeah it is it is it is sin it's a shame upon the man who is um uh supposed to be washing his wife in the water and the word according to ephesians 5 to present her more pure he's leading her into some of the deepest and darkest sin um he is not honoring the marriage bed according to hebrews 13 7 uh, as hebrews 13 um there is all sorts of reasons that it is sin um but uh even even just to add to the shock factor of the fact of, of the fact that this goes on, even in like reform circles, just last year, there was a guy who sort of got outed and he, his anonymous status got blown on Facebook because he, he, he was, he was defending, he was defending the ability for Christians to create video pornography together with their wife and, you know, between a wife and a husband and outsource it to other people to watch and enjoy as long as it was done consensually heterosexually and within the bonds of marriage, but that would be used because the song of Solomon's is pretty graphic. And you know what, if he had, if he had the ability to make video, he would have, but instead he just used explicit language. Um, Now this was, this was convincing to nobody except loser husbands who already had porn addictions. I'm telling you, Mm. none of his argumentation was, was at all uh, convincing, but, but yeah, it turns out there was this little secret homemade, 
Baptist sex, uh, you know, porn ring going on and, uh, and a whole bunch of reform people had to go, Whoa, I had no idea. This was some of the stuff he said was like, was okay. And then he just, this all blew up. Yikes. So threw him to the, threw him to the side. Um, so all that to say, sin is deceptive and self-justifying and sexual sin, especially is consuming. You'll find in your own heart and mind and, uh, uh, life every excuse possible to normalize and to justify pornographic use and it is it is the one of the biggest tools of the enemy to pacify men to make them feel guilty and shameful so that they don't stand up and fight for jesus um to destroy marriages and when you destroy marriages like you said a hundred other blessings fall flat on society and families and children um uh so the the plea and the command of scripture is flee sexual immorality flee it run away from it flee from uh all of these sins which wage war against your soul and will turn you into a pervert and will turn your wife against you um uh yes it is a sin and it needs to be immediately confessed to uh wife and or and pastor so that you can get immediate help um not through some 12-step program but through biblical discipleship so that you know what sex is and what it's for what manhood is and what it's for and what marriage is supposed to be. So yes, a, a very stark and horribly popular sin. Mm. And yeah, I've seen it with the work that I did. I, you know, served as a police officer and right. um, I've had to witness um, through certain things. I've had to watch people um, and you see how sin gets more and more depraved, the more they feed yeah. it. Um, it. It's a, it's like a never ending pit that you just keep yeah. falling down. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's very sad. Um, but I'll move on. We've, I've got three more questions left. Okay. I'm aware of the time. So, um, one of the next questions is, um, how can we be held responsible for our sin if God has already predestined us to be sin, oh. which is the, the usual, um, anti-Calvinist type, well, not yeah. anti-Calvinist, but that's usually the question that people ask yeah. about uh, you know, predestination and stuff, which can confuse people. Yeah. So um, there is the will of God and the will of man do operate in terms of our intention and our own ontological minds. They do operate on, on different types of planes. God is able to decree things or ordain that things will happen in the future and, uh, and determine definitively that they will happen and not be guilty for those things happening we don't that that is difficult that, that that's 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 orthodox christianity everyone everyone should agree with that um and did until about five minutes ago um it's especially clear in reformed confessions of faith the decrees of god uh, the reason it's difficult for us to wrap our mind around is because we don't really have a human equivalent of that we can't we try and think well well if i did that i'd still be technically guilty you know uh, um but we we're, we're operating on different planes god's mind and his will and his sovereignty is quite different to ours um uh, uh, so he can ordain sin and predestine sin to occur without committing the sin that he has without being guilty of the sin that he has predestined um whereas the human we are held accountable, not for what we've been decreed to do, but for what we actually willfully do. So 
In other words, I find, I find it helpful to take it back to basics. Why is it not sin for God to decree sin? Because what is sin? Sin is the breaking of God's law. Okay, that's what the Bible tells us, 1 John 3. Uh, sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking God's law. That's what the confession will tell us as well. Um, is there any law that exists that God has spoken out that says, thou shalt not eternally decree that sin occur? No. There's, there's no such law like that. God didn't make a law against himself. God didn't make laws against decreeing things. Uh, 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 sin is only possible in the human realm. And so he made laws for the human realm. And so the law is things like do not murder. Like, okay. So is it a sin for me to murder? Yes. Cause the law says don't murder. Is it a sin for God to ordain that I mur murder? Well, no, because there's no law against God decreeing whatever he wants to decree. It, it simply, it simply doesn't fit the definition of sin or evil. Um, so, uh, we, we, we speak of the two, two different wills of God, the, the, um, uh, sovereign will and the, and the, and the, the spoken will or the revealed will, uh, the secret will is all of all the things that he's decreed to happen. We don't know what will happen tomorrow, but they will all happen according to God's decree, his secret will. But what should we do? What should I do is not worry about the secret things I should do according to what God has spoken. Now, he has spoken, don't murder. But his secret will was that Cain, oh, well, let, let's even take it forward. Jesus would be murdered. Is it a sin that Jesus was murdered? Yes. Was it a sin that God ordained that Jesus would be murdered? No. Why? Because he was ordaining something beautiful and good out of it. And so we see this um, one good verse in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. Mm -hmm. But those things that are revealed are for us and our children that we might live by them. We don't know what God's decreed. We know what he's told us to do. That is what we are judged by. So no one is ever judged. And on judgment day, God will never say, you know, Ev or Bob, you were decreed from eternity past to lie. You're going to hell for, your, for that. No, no, that's not why you go to hell. That's not why you'd be punished. He will not say you were decreed to do something. He will simply say you willfully chose to sin in this way against my law is that correct we'll say yeah yeah that's correct for that you'll be you'll be punished and we might say but you decreed that i would how is this fair and say yeah well i i have the free will to be able to ordain whatever comes to pass and i won't judge you for what i did i will judge you for what you did is it intellectually tricky yeah should that worry us no we're talking about the infinite god of the universe here um, I'm very glad that he has a mind stretching theology for me in the Bible. Um, uh, but really the reality is God is sovereign. We are not the, the true Christian with a born again heart should be leaning on the side of, if you have to, if you have to lean to one way, either my sovereignty or God's sovereignty, the true born again heart should really be wanting to lean towards God's sovereignty and whatever gives him glory. Maybe intellectually we're going, oh, how does that work if he's already predestined me to sin? Um, but but we're not grasping at that and trying to throw ourselves into the stream that gives us all the response, all of the sovereignty. Because the, the defining mark of a regenerate heart is a bent knee to the lordship of Christ and whatever gives him glory. Mm, definitely. Um, now, the next question that was sent in is one that I personally um, 
have had a recent journey on myself and that is into okay. post-mill eschatology. Um, <laughs> okay. you know, I was, I was reared on the left behind series and, and Disby, uh, family. Um, so this was a really oh. exciting and hopeful, um, transformation in my faith, right. but I'll read the question out, uh, what this particular person have asked, uh, since God will not always strive with man, why should the world go on much longer? And then um, they made a point in the question of saying, certainly things are far worse than the days of Noah. Um, so, you know, pre-Diluvian sort of days. Um, and hasn't also the great falling away taken place? Are we not in end times? Where to start, Ev? <laughs> Uh, all right. Um, certainly where things are worse than in the days of Noah, so they say. Um, Jesus explicitly said that the worst generation ever was the generation killed in. The, the worst sin that was ever committed is the is not just sin between man and man. We're all sinners. It's the, the sin of murder, lie, betrayal, um, Corruption against the Holy One, the murder of the author of life, the, the, the cursing of the Holy One, Jesus Christ. So his death was the most unrighteous thing that had ever occurred. And Jesus himself says, this, this adulterous generation will be judged by the likes of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, now, did God send his judgment upon that generation? That, that people group, the Jews and that generation. Yeah, he did. Yeah, in, in large measure in AD 70 and the wars leading up to that, put out a lot of wrath upon those people and wiped out the Israel nation as a geopolitical nation and some among the nations exactly as he said he would do in Deuteronomy 28 if they did not listen to him. Okay, so yes, God judges equity. But we've already been proven that we are not in the most adulterous the most sinful generation that's ever lived um because we haven't killed the messiah now would we yeah sure but we didn't um so the 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 big question becomes what measure are you using to how do you view history do you view history as jesus came and died zipped up to heaven it's gonna go crazy it's gonna get worse and then he'll come back save a few get him out turn this world into a furnace and then come back um, or, and this is the, obviously the side that I lean on, that I don't lean on it, I'm full in, is that even history is itself the revelation of God's plan and purpose. So that in the death of Jesus Christ, what the Psalms tell us is that he, he came to establish his kingdom. And he did that. Jesus says, I've established my kingdom um, by quoting Daniel 7 all the time. And also by saying, if I cast out the demons then the kingdom of God has come among you. Okay. And then you have the, the apostles start preaching about the kingdom of Jesus that is, that is uh, established. He was raised up to the throne in heaven. Galatians uh, uh, says, is the ruler of kings on earth. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The kingdoms of the earth have become the kingdoms of God and his Christ. Revelation 11, uh, uh, Revelation 8, 11, I think that is. So all that to say, the redemption that Jesus purchased the cross Colossians 1.20 tells me was to reconcile all things to to God through his cross. Uh, that does not mean that everybody gets saved, but it does mean that the, the overarching mission of Jesus is not to let things get worse, but to redeem the world. 
he, he loved the world. He came to the world not to condemn it, but that the world might be saved through him. Um, his kingdom was established first century and that we were a minority for a long time. Even now, maybe the true regenerate Christians are a minority in the world. I, I, I'm not reading the newspapers to try and figure out my history. I'm reading the Bible and the prophets tell me what was going to come through the Messiah was the, was the, the global permeation of people coming to God to worship him. So uh, uh, it's the age of refreshing, Peter says in Acts chapter three. It's the uh, 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 it's the, the the pouring forth of the um, uh, people to God's temple and the blessings out of the temple. God's people, like in the vision of Israel's uh, flood. I'm I'm just I'm get, I'm sinking in all the stuff that I could say about this, but let me just say um, we are in the end times, but according to Peter. Joel prophesied in, in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, Joel prophesied the end times. And this today on Pentecost is what he prophesied. So, in other words, he's saying, Joel spoke of the end times, and the end times are just a few days, weeks, months, or years before Jesus comes back. The end times started with Jesus' resurrection and is pouring out of Pentecost and stretch until Jesus comes back. Um, uh, he died, he rose, he went to the right hand of God, and a 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that there he will reign. He must reign until he has put every enemy under his feet. That's not something that happens after he comes back. That's something that happens through his reign and then comes the end. So my, my view of, of history, I'll just come out very explicitly. My view of history is post-millennial and is very hope-filled. I look at, yes, the danger and the destruction, the corruption of the world today and the way that technology and globalism just just poisons uh, the world. But I can also see the extreme benefits that have come upon the world because of the, 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 the grace of God, uh, especially pouring through the church. And I see Christianity growing, and I think that she is going up and down, but generally being purified. And I'm looking forward to the next maybe 50, maybe 100, maybe 2,000 years, maybe 20,000 years, I, I act like Jesus is coming back next week. I build like as if he's not coming back for another 10,000 years. That's how I try and live urgent enough as I'm not ashamed if he comes back tomorrow, but wise enough and building as if I've still got another 10,000 years of Christian history for Christianity to envelop the globe so that the glory, the knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth. Like the waters fill the sea. Mm. The waters don't fill the sea in puddles here and there. The waters fill the extent of the sea. And so the knowledge of Jesus Christ will fill the world. Um, and I would just say very, you know, lastly, hasn't the great rebellion fallen, taken place, the great apostasy, the great falling away. Look, there's lots of different ways that people interpret that. My view is that that will happen at the very end of history as a one, as that last generation, there's one last rebellion before Jesus comes back and judges them. And it's very short lived. Um, but what I'll tell you, the great rebellion is not, it is not a whole bunch of celebrity Christians and athletes deconstructing. That is not the great falling away. Um, stop reading E! News and, and Israel Christian uh, times and just start, keep preaching the gospel, building the kingdom, read your Bible uh, and read Victory in Jesus by Greg Barnson. That's my mm. advice as a pastor yeah. to Australia. 
it's a healthy advice. I, 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 I obviously adhere to the same um, eschatology as yourself. So everything made a lot of sense to me, but I think how you sort of reasoned it with, you know, be prepared for him coming, you know, next week, but build for the future. I think that's a healthy way for any Christian to live their life, regardless of where they sit, whether it's, you know, pre-trib, A-mill, post-mill, whatever it is, that's a healthy way for any true regenerate Christian soul to live on this earth. And I think we also have to be mindful that the West isn't everything in the world. And we view the yeah. whole world as just the West. So we look at all these statistics yeah. about, you know, the West Christianity is declining, but it's like, what about South America? What about mm. Africa? What about all of these other countries in the world that are around? Look at China. There are more Christians in China than there are the entire population of Australia. And that's yeah. a non-Christian country. So I think we have yeah. to look bigger than ourselves and yeah, not just also- doom and gloom. I also think if you were sitting in 1906 in Korea, you're in a closed, uh, uh, tyrannical country. And then in just one year, they become home to one of the greatest revivals that ever struck, 1907 Pyongyang revival. So that now, just 100 years later, they are now the most Christianized country on the globe. And they send Mm. more missionaries out per capita than anybody. Hmm. And largely very sound churches. Uh, and it's and then we look at North Korea. And I think we just think in small periods of time and yeah. we we think as practical deists. And I'm I'm thinking around the corner, like in four weeks' time, revival could hit Australia. That in 50 years, uh, people talk about Australia like we talk about you know Christian Britain back in the day and talk about mm-hmm. South Korea today. Like North Korea doesn't have long, it's fallen. I think give us give us 50 more years and 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 then assess the church in Australia. I think we've got bright days ahead of us. Like there's mm-hmm. uh, the the more outspoken we become, the more guys rally together and and the more we pray, the more God uh, is likely to pour out something of his spirit that would not be fanatical but would be deep reformation and deep revival. Um and yeah. you know, I just I just look at any any Christian-ish nation now. Okay, were they not once pagans? Were they not once butchering their kids in 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 pagan sacrifices? Yeah. Yeah. Well, God can do anything, man. Like, look at Wales, look at Pyongyang, look at anywhere. God can send a revival mm-hmm. that comes with reformation that just that 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 I, I don't want people to think pessimistically. And so don't pray for God's great work when when we can be filled with hope. And there, and it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you hope for it, you follow after that hope. You look for that hope. You build for that hope. You pray for that hope. And God pours out his blessing accordingly. Yeah. It saddens me seeing so many Christians be so pessimistic about the success of the gospel as well. Mm. So I think that's something, you know, we need to have a lot more faith in, um, Christ and his, you know, reign on the throne, uh, which yeah. is something pretty significant. But I'm going to finish off with one last question, okay. which I think um, is a good way to finish, uh, which is how do you know, how do you know that Christianity isn't just another false religion? Mm. That's a good question. Um, uh, so, well, to speak in the way that Calvin would speak, the way that I know the 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 reason I know is because the Holy Spirit has applied the truth of the Bible into my heart so that I am able to know. I'm able to believe and and uh, give myself to that that evidence that the natural man without the born again heart 
cannot know that Christianity is the truth until the spirit of God using the truth from the word subjectively applies it to our heart. Having said that, it's not some Gnostic notion that, um, well, we can know because we have this spiritual experience and there's nothing we can say to other people to give a reason. You know, you just have to have the light switched on by the spirit. Rather, the reality is um, the, the, what the spirit helps us to know is that the Bible is the objective basis for all truth. So in other words, a guy called um, Vettel and uh, Greg Barnson have sort of popularized this way of phrasing it in that um, I believe in the truthfulness of the Bible and therefore Christianity as different and distinct from any other religion because of the impossibility of the contrary. Hmm. If we were to remove the, the Bible, not just a scripture, but the Bible, the 66 books and the truths that are revealed within it, if we were to remove that from existence, it never got written, Nothing that never happened. Um, in other words, God did not omnipotently and inerrantly reveal himself to the world through his word, then we would have the basis of knowing exactly and precisely nothing. Because um, if all we're left to is rationalism, which is we think about it and therefore we, we come to conclusions, you can never have true certainty because you have to start there with some assumptions of, uh, well, can I even trust my mind? Or might I be a brain in a vat? Might I be living in a simulation? Might I just be like the Looney Tune in the, in the, um, uh, in the prison somewhere who thinks that he's the smartest philosopher in the world but he's an idiot. He's a blabbering fool. Might I be that? Yeah, maybe. But, you know, we've got to go with our gut and the best we can do is rationalize. That's rationalism. It's self-refuting. Um, or we can go empiric hardline empiricism, which is give me evidence or I die. Like just give me evidence, evidence, evidence. But but even then you're starting with the, the unproven and unprovable assumption that evidence results in truth. That, that's an assumption you just have to start with is that you can trust your senses, what you see and touch and measure, and that things that are empirically proven are true in terms of the whole universe. Like, how do you know, this is the law of induction. How do you know that just because you do this test with electrons, that that applies to any other electron in the world? What, what unifying principle ties every electron together in the principle, um, in the, you know, in the uh, uh, realm of principles? Like, uh, so... How do I know that I can know things? How do I know that the world is knowable? How do I know that there is truth out there to be known? The only, the only actual, firm, unassailable certainty we can have is because God, who made the world to be knowable and made us like him and able to know things, the only way we can know that is because he wrote and spoke into this world to confirm and affirm to us that we are made by him we are made in his image. The world is made to be knowable and known. We can trust our senses as long as they're in line with scriptural teaching. Um, only because of that basis do we have the ability to know for certain anything. So with, without that, without a triune God who reveals himself in that way, um, this, of course, is all the, the question of how do you know is the question of epistemology. Um, and, and this is revelational epistemology. We only know because God has told us. Um, 
And, and once he told us those basic things, we can now know many other things about our world that the Bible does not necessarily speak to. So um, without that, we have an impossibility of knowing anything. And therefore, that is what we call the, I know that Christianity is true because of the impossibility of the contrary. Uh, nothing could be true if it wasn't true. Uh, and how does an individual come to know that? How does an individual come to be convinced of that? The Holy Spirit working with the word enlightens your eyes, brings you through the process of regeneration, makes you first and primarily to trust alone in Jesus Christ for your salvation. And from that place, um, uh, you are able to understand the fullness and the truthfulness of the word of God and have that full assurance spoken of in Colossians 2. So I would, I would say anybody who is hearing this or, or listening to this and is not certain that they are in Jesus Christ, read the word of God, ask God to reveal himself to you in the person of Jesus Christ so that you have a new heart. And with that new heart, you trust him for salvation and him alone and full confidence and full assurance in the truthfulness of God will follow. Amen. And I do hope that people who are, are watching this, who maybe wrote those questions in because that's where they feel, reach out to somebody, read the word, like, um, you know, like Tom said, and um, read it with an open mind and an open heart. And mm. yeah, let's uh, keep the conversation going where look, I'll, I'll finish it off there. That's all the questions. Um, where can people follow you? Um, have you got social media pages? Have you got a website? If people want to maybe ask you more questions, if they're in your particular area and want to go to your yeah. church or they want to follow some of maybe your sermons, where can people go? Okay. So the number one landing page would be our church's YouTube. Um, uh, Hope Reformed Baptist Church on YouTube will come up. Um, uh, there is all sorts of content there that you can filter through. Every second fortnight, so every second Sunday night, we do a live Q&A to our YouTube. Um, so people are welcome to throw questions in there um, uh, and tune in. But I would like, if they're, if there are people who are looking for a personal question, please um, jump onto that church website and uh, our church website, hoperb.church and find the email there and just send, send your questions. I will see it personally. I'll respond to you probably with my personal email. Um, if you're in the area, we can catch up if someone's seeking salvation or if they're looking for a good church. Um, but our, yeah, our, our main, uh, uh, the main landing page would definitely be our, our church YouTube. And if they're looking for salvation, if they know they're not a Christian and want to inquire more, please send our church an email and I will, I will respond personally and make sure I put some time aside to help you find the Lord Jesus. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for being a trooper today um, and going through all these questions um, with us. Um, it's been a pleasure. I've, as I said, they before, got colorful. Really, they did. I have really enjoyed everything you've done. Um, and you know, the stance that you sort of took and your boldness um, and courage that you had over the challenging few years. Uh, I have one last question I'd like to, um, I'd like to ask you before we go today. Um, if you could, and this is my question, if obviously the Bible, but if, if there was one other book that you would recommend to people to read, um, what would that be? All of Grace by Charles Spurgeon. It is his, um, it is his uh, desperate plea in help to point people who are seeking salvation towards Jesus Christ in the clearest way possible. And he is one of the world's greatest uh, uh, soul winners. And God's still using his work to save souls today. No one preached Jesus like 
Charles Spurgeon preaching. Prince of Preachers. <laughs> Absolutely. So I was put onto that book by my former pastor, Craig Ireland, who has actually just done a revised and abridged version of that book. Um, so it's, it's on Kindle. We'll have some at Hope eventually, but anyway, find whatever version you can. But if you're looking for an updated version, it's called By Grace Alone by Craig Ireland. And that would be a helpful version. But um, yeah, that's Spurgeon just pointing people to Jesus like only Spurgeon can. It's And um, I, I recommend that for all Christians. I try and read it once a year. That was a practice I picked up from Craig. Um, pastors should read it frequently. Uh, I recommend every Christian who comes to our church to read it at least once. Um, uh, and anybody out there, that would be, of all the topics that are out there and all the things that, that a pastor could say, there's many of them. The primary thing is making Jesus Christ known through the gospel and you need to read all of grace. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. I, I am a huge fan of Spurgeon. So um, I, I also, if it means anything, recommend it. Uh, he's a great preacher, yeah, a great gold. speaker. But um, thanks so much again for joining me on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing all the trouble you're going to cause on the internet coming forward. Yeah, bring it on. <laughs> bring it on. Got to stir some things up to build something. So uh, thanks for having me on. Again, I really appreciate it.